Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. Plushcare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You're on Team Human, where we challenge the operating systems driving our society, reveal the embedded codes, and share strategies for sustainable living, economic justice, and preservation of the quirky nooks and crannies that make people so much more than mere programs. This is where the conscious beats the automatic, an intervention by people on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, activist Jason Van Anden. I'm seeing a lot of people very absorbed in reacting right now. It's going to be really hard to have a impact if that's the new normal. Jason, who's probably most famous for the I'm Getting Arrested app he built for the Occupy movement, will be sharing his strategies for mobile justice, bringing the power of handheld digital technology to activists and other humans on the front line. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. This is Team Human. There was a moment during the Oscars, which aired this week, that stood out for me as one of those kind of parallax view moments where everything that's happening suddenly makes sense. And it was a fleeting moment of sense. So I may not make as much sense about it now as it seemed to make to me at that moment. But it was when uh, they brought in an unsuspecting busload of tourists. They were on some Los Angeles Hollywood tour and they got brought in to the Oscars ceremony while it was going on. And they were escorted right down to the very front of the theater where Jimmy Kimmel introduced them to the celebrities, you know, Ryan Gosling and all these, uh, uh, you know, gorgeous uh, tuxedoed and, and bespangled Hollywood starlets. And these regular people were getting to meet them, you know, in their jeans and T-shirts and half shaved and 
some of them were kind of in shock that they were being brought down into this giant event and other ones were excited and took out their little cell phones and smartphones and started to do selfies and Instagrams and tweets of them where they were and I couldn't really tell as I was looking at it if if they were being celebrated or in some way humiliated as if the only way to to underscore the the celebrity and high status of the stars in the room was to contrast them against real people, just plain old folk. And you can see, oh, wow, the stars really look well put together now compared to people who are wearing just whatever colors they're wearing and little, you know, name tags and just off a tourist bus, you know. And moreover, it seemed to be contrasting the slick, high production values of a Oscars night in Hollywood that the ultimate television event celebrating a cinema uh, industry against the little homespun pocket-held internet broadcast devices of regular people. You know, in some ways, this seemed to me to be television culture or mainstream media culture's pushback against internet culture. As if, well, we've had these elections and all this stuff where digital technology and Twitter wars are unseating the traditional power holders in politics and culture and economics. But here we are, we're going to hold down the fort here and bring in, it was, it felt like, you know, when they, when they bring in the, the slaves in a Roman games or the teenagers in the hunger games and the, you know, who are, who are brought in to this giant arena, kind of not knowing what's going to go on around them, that the, the, uh, the sense of ambush for me was palpable. And, you know, they could either respond to the ambush or respond to the cheese that's put in front of them. Oh my gosh, there's Meryl Streep, there's Ryan Gosling, there's Denzel Washington. So you have a choice now, either as a, as a regular person, either to be outraged and ambushed and, oh my God, they've just thrown me on national television, international television, and they're kind of humiliating me and kind of making fun of me can either go down that road or just be thankful that I've been made part of this thing. I've got access to this special giant theater where only movie stars get to go. And it it ended up, though, creating this spectacle where you have regular human beings off a tour bus now standing next to the superhumans of Hollywood. And it did not make the superhumans of Hollywood appear more human, except maybe Meryl Streep, who actually seems to know how to handle moments like this with grace. But it it makes them look superhuman and us, and I yes, I identify more with the people on the bus than the people in that theater, and us look somehow pathetic. And to me, this whole moment, it epitomized 
the battle that we're now seeing between digital and television or di digital and, and broadcast or traditional media. Let's call it uh, d television for now. And that's really the battle that we just saw happen in politics. We saw a digital candidate, and I was always arguing that Trump was a digital candidate even before we found out just how digital his campaign was, but a digital candidate against a television candidate or digital culture against TV culture against global TV elitist culture. And the regime's tactics, of course, also reflect this. You know, they use big data to do psychological profiling. The firms that are now working for the regime and that worked to put the regime in place are the same firms that fought a digital war to pass the Brexit vote in, in England, where we're finding out that a third of the tweets that were coming out during that uh, election process were automated robotic tweets designed based on psychological profiling of individual users. You know, we found out now that there are over 200 million separate files on Americans. Each American has a file with up to five or 10,000 data points from Facebook and other social media that are used to decide exactly what advertisements, what news stories to put in front of us, not just based on our interests or what we clicked on, but based on the psychological profiling that they've been able to do with all of those data points. It's digital media configured to manipulate the masses versus television and print media where professional journalism operates. When Trump attacks the press and calls them the enemy of the people, he's really attacking TV itself, the television press, CNN, MSNBC, even Fox, calling them fake news and hoping to make his constituency even more dependent on the psyops or psychological warfare coming through their Facebook feeds. That's the war. He's attacking television. TV is a bunch of lying elitists, the enemy of the people. So TV fights back at the Oscars, as if to prove the primacy of Hollywood by patronizing all those common folk with their smartphones and selfie sticks. I'm usually on the digital side in these things. I'm on the side of those people in the, in the theater with their little smartphones. Uh, you know, rather than the side of the movie stars or the producers who decided to to pull in these uh, uh, men and women off the street. Uh, I'm with the little guy. And I do believe that as we move from a television age to a digital age, we have the opportunity to seize the very dashboard of cultural creation as we never have before. But right now, those digital dashboards are being used by a new elite, a new digital elite to manipulate us. No, this is not to, uh, to liberate us from the spell of captive programming, but to manipulate us on an entirely new level under the guise of independent, uh, personalized, customized media feeds, we actually are manipulated in a one-to-one -one way. Each of us manipulated 
and the whole crowd manipulated as a result. This was the original aim of propaganda, to speak to the entire mass as if you were speaking to them one at a time. That's what propaganda is for. And that's what the new regime and the technologists behind it understand. That's what these firms and the billionaires who own these firms, if you you know want more, we'll put some links up to some good articles on The Guardian and Politico, but these are easy to find now about exactly how it works and which firms are behind it and which firms are owned by what other firms and who are the investors in each. You know, I'm personally less concerned with the particulars of which human beings are behind each of these efforts then that we understand how these efforts actually work and that we as the progressive culture uh, begin to be less aspirational and abstract in the way we communicate. If the progressive left wing of America is somehow represented by what was going on in that room in Hollywood, I mean, I get that that room in Hollywood is not racist. That room in Hollywood accepts gay people and transgender people and, and, and believes more of the things about our society that I think most of the listeners of this show believe, but they're orchestrating it in such an aspirational and abstract way as if they were almost embodying these uh, platonic ideals and then contrasting themselves against the real people of the street. You know, that was a framing that I imagined coming from the, uh, the, the nationalist alt-right rather than the progressive left. And instead, what the left has to do, what progressive people have to do is begin to show that we are more committed to those very people on the ground. You know, we are not in the business of humiliating the common man. And to to create an event that looks to me very much like humiliation, or at least like a joke at the expense of the dignity of the common men and women of this nation, um, that's a very dangerous place to play. And I think the reason we're playing there is because of just how threatened progressives are by the decline of television and the rise of the net. Television brought us a certain range of progressive values that have peaked. And now we must translate those values and value sets to the digital media terrain, to this new landscape. We have to learn to do it to promote the collectivist spirit of this, uh, the end of the television era. And uh, somehow... Uh, allow that to emerge on the net. And the key to it, at least for right now, the key to it is to embrace people rather than humiliating them. See the sameness between uh, whatever this elite is and the, uh, the, the populist urge that so many people have right now. If you can engage with populism with some amount of dignity, 
and affirmation, we'll be in a lot better position than we are doing the opposite. Let's talk to one of the people forging that alternative new approach to the power of technology. Digital tools not for manipulating people, but liberating them. Our guest today is activist Jason Van Anden. You were doing work, uh, I, I kinda, we were kind of working in parallel. I mean, around you know 2011 when Occupy happened, I had originally scheduled to do this conference called Contact, the Contact Summit in uh, you know downtown New York that was going to be originally about kind of folding the countercultural fringes back into the middle of the internet. And then Occupy happened, and all of a sudden it was like, all hands on deck. Let's do tech support, you know, right. tech support for Occupy. And in a way, that's really what, what, I mean, what put you on the radar for me was the I'm getting arrested app. Right. Which I guess, I mean, originally that came out of, uh, was Occupy still going on when you came out with that app? Yeah. So Occupy was kind of in its sort of gestation period still. It, like, you know, there was that first two or three weeks where things were happening, but it hadn't really the news was not outside of New York. It was a very fringe sort of thing that was happening. And a friend of mine who worked downtown, who has uh, excellent video chops, was doing a lot of the video stuff that w- to, to, to let people know what was happening. His name's Sam Zimmerman. And Z- Sam and I were collaborating on um, some technology that I was working on at the time. Sam's girlfriend, Jeannie Love, was protesting on the Brooklyn Bridge, almost arrested her in, you know, she was inclined to try to chat with Sam. I was chatting with Sam on regular, you know, messaging. And it was like this moment where we're trying to figure out like, well, what, you can't really chat in that situation. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What do you do? Um, I had a bunch of the tech line around the, from the thing we were working on. And so I was like, you know what, like we could create something in a couple of days. Um, Let's do it you know, for, for the demonstrators, basically in a couple of evenings I did, I'm getting arrested and we, we just made it available to people and it was released right when, um, I don't know when, 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 when Occupy was starting to get on people's radar. And so it, it became or people outside of New York. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so it became, you know, it, it kind of rode that, that tide of, of interest. And for people who don't know, what's the, the basic functionality of the app? So it's basically, it's, it's a panic button app. It was, the fir- it was the first mobile panic button app, which is partly why it also got the attention it got. I mean, it, it was in the news for about three weeks. I know. I saw you on, uh, on Rachel Maddow. You know, yeah. it, was, it was sort of her easiest way to cover Occupy in a way that didn't confound her audience, too. That's right. Like- <laughs> and, that's, and, that, and that was the funny part about this is that, you know, um, I had a two-year-old at the time. My wife... Uh, was teaching on the weekends and so trying to figure out how I could participate in Occupy was tricky and this, uh-huh. I saw this as an opportunity like you know do you bring a stroller to to a demonstration like how, how does that work you strap your kid on the front and uh-huh. hope for the best so I wrote the app we released it and and then for the next three weeks it was like anytime someone called it it, it felt like you know my job became keeping 
you know, answering all those calls, answering all those queries from journalists, um, is, and, and partly because I felt a responsibility to maintaining the visibility that this was bringing to Occupy at the time. Um, so it became like this side job for the three weeks that that happened. But and going then, back to what the app does. Yeah, it, how it works, yeah. So yeah, so the Rachel Maddow segment does a really great job of, of teaching everyone how it works. It really only takes about 30 seconds to understand how the app works. You basically, the, the app was developed so that it would be so straightforward that you wouldn't have to explain anything. You get the app, it tells you to click on the screen. You click on the screen and it presents you with a field where you can enter a message that you'd want to send in the event that you triggered the app. And then you pre-populate it with SMS numbers of people you'd want to send that message to. And that's it. Then when you back out of the app, if you hold, it shows you a big target. If you hold your finger down on the target for like three seconds, the app gives you feedback that it's, you know, that it's sent the message by vibrating. And, it, and in some versions of this, it will lock the phone at that point. Um, and that's, that's pretty much it. That's what the app does. It's nice. And so it sends, I mean, will people know where you've gotten arrested? Yeah. So it, it follows, if you opt in to sharing your location, it will follow up with a second message that'll include a Google Maps URL to the, the you know, the spot you were at when, when the event occurred. And then can it, can it follow you? So you can leave it so that if you're getting dragged to an East German gulag or something. They... <laughs> so we have a version we created uh, for Brazil called I'm Getting Kidnapped. because someone had reached out to us and said this is a big problem down here you know could you create something so we created an app called i'm getting kidnapped and that does it and what that does actually so so you know keeping the gps on and for an extended period of time will drain the battery so we have like an alarm that basically sends uh it sends your position more frequently at first and then it starts to kind of send it less frequently as time goes on so that it can preserve the battery life. I'm assuming that the positive experience and the feedback you got making this and is what kind of launched you into this whole, I won't even call it a career, but let's use that word, you know, that this whole career of kind of social justice and civic engagement apps, seeing that there's this way to use these technologies, which have been uh, you know, surrendered largely to the, uh, the surveillance and uh, thought control industries to flip that around and to empower individuals and networks and collectives to you know leverage the tremendous power of networking and digital technology to empower social change. Yes. What what happened from I'm getting arrested is that the New York Civil Liberties Union got in touch with us and asked if we could create something like this for stop and frisk. And then, and so we ended up creating the first police video by, what happened was, is that the, <laughs> when we were thinking about the actual use case of, you know, if you're at a protest and you hold your finger down on the phone for a couple of seconds to trigger the app, it's one thing. But if people are approaching you, presumably because you might have a weapon on you <laughs> right. and you reach into your pocket, it could be a lot of, you know, that, that could get you killed. So we... Um, I had been thinking about other technologies because of I'm getting arrested. And so we ended up developing a, uh, the first police video bystander app, which was called stop and frisk watch in 2012. And this app was meant to, you know, document things that were occurring from the bystanders perspective versus the person who was being approached by the police. Um, and then that technology, the idea there is, is that it records the event that you're recording and allows you to stop the recording very quickly and lock the phone. 
and the video gets automatically sent to the honest broker, in this case, Nyclue, for stop and frisk watch. So that even if the cop or some bad guy grabbed the phone and smashed it, said, you're not going to show that, it's already up. Yeah, that was the idea of locking the phone, was that you know if somebody's fiddling with it to try to figure out how to stop the video from uploading, we, we, we now actually implement streaming. So we're, we're able, to, as long as you've got a good internet connection, the video will get pushed as it's recording to the uh, server where it could be, you know, looked at during the intake process. And it's worked? It's, it's, it's been used successfully? I tested it at JFK Terminal 4 a few weekends ago. <laughs> it worked great. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, are there, are there stories of, uh, you know, justice that's been, you know, the justice has been done because of the existence of the app? So that's hard to measure. And what I would say is this, is that, no, I mean, so the short answer is not yet. Um, there's been a lot of video that is almost useful or actionable, but nothing's been quite so actionable that it, you could point to it and say, you know, because of the this recording from one of these apps that this this justice was done. You know, the, the Stop and Frisk Watch was the first police video bystander app. It's not to say that, you know, like the, the real killer app, right, is the, is the camera that comes on the phone, right? That, that's right. always been there. And the first famous use of somebody collecting this would be the Rodney King video. Mm-hmm. What's hard to measure is by having Stop and Frisk Watch released, whether or not that educated the public that they had the right to record the police. One of the things that, you know, and again, these are stories that I've gotten secondhand, but one of the stories I heard was that, you know, somebody pulled out their phone to record the police and the, and the officer immediately said, you know, what do you got the Stop and Frisk Watch app? So, you know, having this technology out in the field and presenting it with this use case, in a sense, um, educated kind of both sides of the public. It educated the public that might want to record the event that they had the right to do that. And that in this case, the New York Civil Liberties Union was backing them up, right? Mm -hmm. But it also let the police know that the New York Civil Liberties Union was letting people know that they had the, rec- the right to record these events that were taking place in the city, that they had the right to witness these things. So again, you know, it's hard to measure the impact by, based on whether actionable video was actually collected versus whether the, you know, the existence of the technology itself may have changed behavior. Right. But it's almost like, uh, uh, I, I understand what you're saying, that the, the app itself, the app is a piece of content in media you know it it it's almost as if these days because we're so anchored in our devices it's like if there's an app for something it the app itself models a new normative behavior that's (laughs) right (laughs) well i also think there's this notion of you know the app icon in some ways has become the peace button of this generation of like sort of you know of the mobile generation in that the retention the retention rate on these apps has been really high you know uh, even though the usefulness the actual real life usefulness of these apps is kind of low like how often are you going to see a police incident that you need to record okay but all these people have installed the app regardless and as they're swiping through their phone and deciding which apps to keep on and which ones not to they they leave these apps on Right. And that app is a connection. It's a reminder. It's weird. It's like your apps become 
the new front page of the New York Times in some ways, because no one's looking at the front page. Everybody's coming in sideways through social media. But this is a way to preserve, yeah, there's wars going on. There's uh, <laughs> there's risks going on. There's people getting arrested. And I'm, it's like wearing the paperclip, you know, that it's supposed That's to right. be, you wear the paperclip to show that you will, uh, it, it's the pink triangle of, of our era, where you, you're, you're demonstrating your willingness to defend a uh, Muslim who's being carted off by uh, by the authorities, or or you know being uh, uh, you know attacked by you know some angry uh, supremacists, that having the app on there is like right. I am part of this citizens' brigade um, against injustice. I'm ready to document something going wrong. And I mean, in the end, if there are two, three, four million people with this app, you know they are ready. You know? right. Someone might catch something. Like I say, and not only that, but there's this notion that, again, you know, it, knowing that it exists may change the behavior. I would mm-hmm. much prefer, you know, uh, they're finding this with, uh, you know, with the body cams as well. It's changing the behavior of both the officer who's wearing it and the person they're approaching, right? Like, neither side wants to be perceived badly on camera. Right. At the same time, I mean, if there were... Um not that there should have been, but, you know, I heard conversations from people in my neighborhood in Westchester before the uh, uh, Women's March on Washington, and some of them were afraid. You know, they don't know what Trump's up to or the Homeland Security or someone, and having something like this, it's the activist's version of the American Express card, you know, right. used yeah. to make American tourists <laughs> feel safe in, you know, in Zambia or somewhere, that now... Uh, you know, here's the thing. You, you you don't leave home without it. You're going out into a protest. But yeah, you push this button and there's like those those good young lefty lawyer people will come find you and get you out of this situation. Right. You know, whether they whether they will or not, although I think they will. And of course, you're really you're there with your kids on Broadway protesting Trump. You're not really going to need it. But, you know, that sense of confidence um can can embolden you to uh you know to engage to to well really to do the civic engagement that you're entitled to do anyway but to do it with a sense of uh of security you might not otherwise have yeah we've we've seen this happen with different uh in different scenarios where people will install the app in preparation for an event that's on the horizon Right. I mean, and it's a, it's, it's, of course, I mean, we could go on for a long time about the, the approach to technology, you know, that this is, that this really is a peer to peer pro human understanding of technology, that the app, that the phone empowers the individual by connecting them to the other people and resources they need to, to walk with autonomy and agency and confidence through a, a potentially hostile world with institutions and non-human actors and non-player characters, you know, right. to get you. There's there's all of that, but then there's there's also, especially now, and this is sort of what I want to talk about, at least to the extent that you're that you're comfortable talking about it. Is you know, what is your plan now as as someone who has been supplying technology to you know humans in various states of vulnerability. I mean, what do you see as sort of the user case for the human being in this current uh, 
environment of regime change? You know, what are you working on? And how, if I can, how could I even be of help to you in sort of sorting out some of the issues involved in, you know, in helping people these days? What we're doing now is, I mean, we are talking to a lot of different organizations, and we do have some things in the works that, you know, typically people come to us with a problem, and we come up with ways to solve it. You know, we've, we've become a resource for that, which is quite an honor. Everything we've done is we, we do so that we can mash it up in different ways. So we've got a, a variety of different ideas and technologies that we can mash up for, for social good. And so, you know, part of it is, is connecting to those organizations so that we can help them come up with solutions that will be effective for their for whatever their campaign is. You know, a good example of that was actually last, we did a we did a poll watching app for Latino justice this last election, which was more or less adjusting what we had done for the ACLU for the police video bystander apps. Mm-hmm. We would like to, this is not our only, my company does other things. Like we work with both, you know, uh, we don't just do social good technology. Well, I figure you've got to make a living. I mean, I was going to ask you about that too, is really... Yeah. You know, how do you balance a career and a, and keeping a you know now seven year old alive or whatever with <laughs> with activism? You know, I'm getting arrested is not a money maker. No, uh, but I mean, however important it is. So you you like um, um, many of us are you know struggling between you know I want to do something that makes money that doesn't do more damage than <laughs> than the work. <laughs> <laughs> the work I'm doing that doesn't make money. I would say last year about half of our of our work involved social good, which was you know pretty pretty cool. Yeah. And then half of it was for you know well known brands. But I have to say that you know both both sides of the coin sort of influence each other in good ways. Although I'd say typically the high production budgets that we're working with with the well known brands end up you know we end up there is sort of a trickle down. <laughs> To the social right. good, you know, we do have a sustainable model where we're able to do the the way that we've developed a technology, and it's this has mostly been at a necessity, is such that we can offer a huge value to the organizations we work with. Like I'm getting arrested, we I did completely for free. You know, I just did it because that was my way of participating. And um, right. you know, there was a there was a Wall Street Journal Wall Street Journal got in touch with us like shortly after it started getting attention. We had this long interview, and at the end of it, the 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 reporter asked me like how much we're charging, and I said we're not charging <laughs> anything. I said we're not charging anything for it. She's like, well, what do you mean? I'm the small business uh, journalist, and I was writing an article on how people are making money on on Occupy. I was like, you know, it's, it's, I see it as like social capitalism, not, you know, capitalism. So, so, so she, she, she included us anyway, but the headline for the story was, you know, how, how, how people are making money on Occupy or not. (laughs) And we were the, or not, which was, you know, funny. I know. And it's tricky for them to even understand. Yeah. I, I've had a career in art, which was not sustainable. And so in this particular, this has sort of replaced that for me in terms of like using my creativity to have an impact in a, in a good way. And, you know, um, but I, I, I've been, I've made sure that we have the support to do the things we're doing so that we can do them well. Right. I mean, and you can obviously repurpose, you know, you could develop something for, you know, Unilever, God knows who, 
and there's still a uh, a a piece of technology that you can then take and use it for something else, right? You know, which is not terrible. So it's not just the cash gives you time; it's that the technologies themselves can be often can be repurposed. Or you get an idea while you're even building it. Oh, you know, you know, <laughs> we tweak this and that. It'd be really interesting for people to use in this way. Right. So, I mean, like, for instance, like, this, you know, doing streaming video, right? That's something that we have implemented recently. But, you know, the, the expertise that we have in video for doing work for, let's say, Comcast becomes helpful in, in, in applying that to something for social good. And so in some ways, the two things, you know, the two types of clientele do complement one another. Right. And then what what are you looking at now? I mean, if you're allowed to share it, what are you what's your current challenge? What app do we need or what what tech support do we need in this in this era of Trump? I mean, is there a something that's good for the immigrant situation or we're, uh, we're discussing a variety of things. Part of the effectiveness of these technologies is the element of surprise. Right. So we do try to create things that will be of interest for that particular campaign. And we are working on a few things at the moment that do deal with immigration, hate. And uh, I would say also, you know, helping people feel connected and supported uh, right. during these times. There's a few things in the works. I mean, the other sort of direction that uh, we, we did, we did this app last year called Work It. Yeah. That, that app is interesting in terms of um, it, it connects uh, non-unionized workers to kind of give, fill in that gap that a, that a lack of a union uh, leaves behind. Right. Or a lack of even uh, the, the opportunity to establish solidarity because you're all working from home as Amazon Mechanical Turks or something. You can't even, you know, speak to one another, much less uh, connect as, as fellow laborers. Right. Yep. Um, so this, this is but well, this is an app we developed for the 1.3 million non-unionized Walmart mm-hmm. uh, workers. So and the idea here is, is that it, it's a support network that allows them to to find the answers to questions that would um, that might be uh, hard to find otherwise and also establishes a support network. Right. And those are the kinds of solutions, you know, that that I've been talking a lot about on this show and in my work is these you know, wh- how do we forge new uh, new levels of solidarity whether, you know, it's you know technologically through mesh networks or economically through local currencies or ideologically through connections of of the kind that you're talking about. But, you know, since Trump was elected, most of the calls that I've been getting from organizations are looking for either, you know, technological or viral or new media solutions to the same old electoral politics challenges. So the calls I'll get from from K Street or these left-leaning well-meaning democratic firms are, oh, how could we use viral media to extend our, you know, the things that we found out in our opposition research on Trump, you know, which is a, it's a still very top-down broadcast media electoral politics understanding of the role of technology in, in human affairs and social change. Do you know what I mean? Yes. I'm sure you get the same calls that are like, oh, so what can we do to take down Trump? And it's right. like, that's not what we're looking at, is it? No. Um, I think, again, like, you know, as far as I was concerned, you know, pe- 
uh, I'm Getting Arrested wasn't necessarily written for Occupy. It was written for people to have free speech and feel comfortable demonstrating. Um, it was just at the time that was, that was what was on my radar. So, you know, I think anything that encourages people to be visible and to feel comfortable expressing their, you know, their, their perspective on the world is, 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 you know, it's a very useful technology. Now for the, for the listeners who are, you know, a lot of, a lot of people who listen to this show are people who can develop technology. They do know C++ or Java or, you know, processing or something, right. you know, and they're ready or they know Arduino well enough to now, you know, build something. And they're thinking, what do I do? Um, so how do you figure out the the kind of the use case that you want to address uh, before you set to set to task? So I think I'm getting arrested was actually is actually a really good model for this. The friend was almost arrested on a Wednesday, and I knew there was a big demonstration the following Saturday, and I knew I had limited time. So as a software developer, and you know, a seasoned software developer, I said to myself, okay, what can I create in a couple of evenings that's going to be effective and robust? Like, we don't have time to debug this. We don't have time to beta test it. Right. So what 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 can I actually accomplish? And and the trick there is is understanding like let's say what your core competencies are, what what resources are available, and to keep it as simple as possible. And I think if you kind of go with that recipe, you could actually accomplish quite a bit in a very short period of time. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like and, and the other part of I have to say the other part with I'm getting arrested was, you know, we we wanted to get it out there, but what was the most effective way? Like we didn't want to build a website about it. So what we did was we just made the Android market page as compelling as possible. And the thing that was crazy about that is all of that was free. Like our distribution our distribution network was the Android Play Store. Hmm. Right? Like, we didn't have to right. do anything. We have no overhead. We didn't even have to pay for a website. It was just that we, we picked out a compelling picture that we had rights to. We wrote some copy and we uploaded the app. And, and it was, you know, and anybody who wanted information, we just pointed them to the Android Play webpage. You know, to, to be able to do that is, is, I think, pretty extraordinary in our time. Well, you also had a pre existing kind of, uh, what do they call it, product market fit, <laughs> you know? Well, what was funny about it, though, is it's like we, we just basically we just let we just sent an email to the Occupy list, which Sam was, you know, uh, involved with. Just let him know it was there. It was it. it was just like, hey, guys, this we did this. Go here to the store. Download it if you like. It's here. That was it. You know, right. and then and then, you know, I mean, what happened from there was the CNET called us a day later and did a story. And then it it, it kind of snowballed from there. Right. I mean, there were a few other technologies, you know, that emerged at the same time. You know, some of them that we, we uh, funded through that contact summit that I did in, in I guess that was in October. But the, uh, you know, the Freedom Tower and the Freedom Box, these, uh, you know, because it was the sort of very early days of mesh technology. So right. there were, you know, Isaac Wilder, I think it was, you know, had this little tower that gave, you know, Wi-Fi support to right. everyone at the square. I mean, now those are, are used everywhere. Now you could go to a war zone, you know, to set up your Wi-Fi that way. But uh, I feel like that the 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 needs of that community, you know, just sort of forming on pavement in real time, you know, ended up leading to a, a, a host of pretty durable 
technology solutions and even durable uh, uh, consensus solutions, whether it's, uh, you know, Lumio, which is based on the General Assembly, or even the, the Occupy style of of interaction and activism seems to be informing the the current era of, uh, uh, I wouldn't even want to call it anti-Trump, the current era of, of pro-human and pro-democratic uh, activism. Yeah, I mean, that, that to me was the killer app out of all of that. Was 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 educating people on you know and, and coming up with systems for uh, creating a more effective form of demonstration. Yeah, I guess uh, I don't want to take up too much of your time here on this in particular. But uh, as you look forward, are you feeling kind of hopeful about the balance of power here? I mean, I know the the Trump administration, whether willfully or uh, as a side effect of mental illness is really good at creating a kind of a distortion field and a, a memory hole and a, a kind of a, it's almost like an ontological relativism where what's a fact, what's not a fact, this sort of state of confusion and despair. I see most activists and uh, uh, those who would resist, I see them responding reactively to... Yep the hour by hour messaging. I mean, what do you see as our, our, or do you see as sort of the hopeful signs of how we're going to um, engage uh, consciously and effectively in this, in this terrain? Yeah, I think that, I think as a society, we do need to, um, I think we need to delegate a little better. Like, I think if we're all trying to react, nothing's going to get done. And it's almost like we need some people not to listen and other people to do in order to actually uh, be effective with this, because it seems like there's, it's const, there's constant noise coming out and there's constant things to react to. What I'm seeing is, is that like, I'm seeing a lot of people very absorbed in reacting right now. And I think nothing's going to, it's going to be really hard to have a impact if that's the new normal. Right. So that if we preserve a certain portion of our cohort, you know, it, and they remember what's our long-term goal? What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to yes. have your feet on the ground and be involved in a community? If we we maintain sort of the elders or whatever, whatever it is, I think we need to be a little more specialized because it's so hard not to be interested and obsessed with all the noise that's coming out. Right. And, and the solutions to this are going to require some focus. Um, I know despite the outrageousness that's coming in from our government. <laughs> right. Despite the outrageousness and despite however well someone like Rachel Maddow can break it down and help channel our outrage, at a certain point, you start to feel like a leaf in a gale, you know, rather than a, uh, a directed, grounded human being with some agency. So, yeah, I think specialization is a great... That's a great way of, of thinking about it so that people who want to just dive in can do that. But then they know they've got a few of us here on terra firma um, helping them, uh, you know, chart a good a good long term course. Well, shoot, Jason Van Anden, thank you so much for uh, for being on Team Human and, and the work that you do. Uh, you know, when I get sad, I think about. You know, something like I'm getting arrested at. <laughs> and uh, I realized, oh, it's going to be okay. You know? <laughs> oh, thank you. Well, it was quite an honor. So thanks for having me on. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. You've been listening to Jason Van Anden, 
You can find out more about I'm Getting Arrested, Stop and Frisk Watch, and Jason's other apps at Quadrant 2. That's 2Q2.com. Thanks for joining Team Human. We'll be back in the Basement Media Squad here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. This show was produced and edited by Stephen Bartolome. Come visit us at teamhuman.fm where you'll find more information about our supporters and guests, the work they're doing, resources to get involved, and ways to find the others. You can also support the show through our virtual coin slot with a one-time donation or a recurring one. If you want to hear us on the radio, let us know. Or connect us with your local NPR, community, or college station. You're on Team Human, our last best hope for peace. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.